good to see you all this morning. Thanks for being here. Cold morning again in Washington. It's good to be together. We're in this series on the Sermon on the Mount, and so I encourage you to open to Matthew chapter 6. Hopefully you can find the church Bible in front of you and follow along. We've been thinking about these different virtues Jesus commends to us in the Sermon on the Mount. Today we come to the virtue of generosity. It's in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 and following. I just heard it. Thank you for the reading. And yes, this will be a talk in church about money. <laughs> I know, I'm uncomfortable with it too. Um, we don't talk about money that often here because, you know, it's been done badly and it's often done in ways that are manipulative. It's a touchy subject and it really is something that we don't want to put as a stumbling block between you and Jesus Christ. We don't want for this to be an issue in your relationship with him. And yet, what we find today is that Jesus himself is talking about it. And so we need to talk about it because he has done so. He is zeroing in on it as an obstacle in our relationship with him. So that's why we're talking about it today. Uh, he is the great physician, and so if he says we need to talk about it, we need to talk about it. We are going to work through this passage together. It's a long passage. We'll look at three things. First of all, Jesus' saving goal, what's his objective, and then what's your objective, and then finally, who do you follow? Jesus' goal, your goal, and who do you follow? Before we do this, and thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for how you, you cover everything. You speak to us about all aspects of life, and we thank you that you speak to us even about money. We want to be wise in what we do with our money, and so we ask you to make this clear to us and give us the courage to follow you with all that we are and all that we have. Fill us with your Holy Spirit to understand and to leave this place living according to your teaching. We pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. So Jesus' saving goal. Let's talk about Jesus' goal, first of all. One thing that's crystal, crystal clear in all four Gospels is that when Jesus began his, begins his public ministry, he is a man on a mission. He has goals. He, everything he does is purposeful, including what he has to say about money in the Sermon on the Mount. So what's Jesus's long-term objective? It's easy to miss the forest for the trees, going slowly as we've been doing through the Sermon on the Mount, looking at this topic and this topic. We started on Ash Wednesday, talking about the, the part of chapter 6 that's right before this one today, talking about giving to the needy, and prayer, and fasting. And then over the past few Sundays, we've been talking about what Jesus has to say about anger, and lust, and turning the other cheek, and going the extra mile, and so on. And it can feel like a kind of grab bag of how to be good. Almost like Jesus is just trying to make us nice, as if Jesus is, a, is just another manager at Chick-fil-A wanting us all to say, yes ma'am, yes sir. Have some more sweet tea. 
That is not what Jesus is about. He has a very clear goal. What is his long-term objective? It is heaven on earth. Heaven on earth. That's Jesus' saving goal. If you flip back to Matthew 4, 17, in the section that immediately precedes the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has just survived temptation in the wilderness. He's done it successfully, unlike the Israelites before him. He has made it through temptation, triumphing over Satan. And Matthew tells us in chapter 4, verse 17, that from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's Jesus' goal in the Sermon on the Mount and throughout his ministry. In fact, it's always been the goal ever since the beginning of time. This has been what God has always been about. Heaven on earth has always been his plan. From the dawn of time, when God planted a heavenly garden on the earth and he appointed a man and a woman to cultivate it and to multiply and to fill it with his glory, heaven on earth was the goal. And later, after humanity had rebelled against him, God rescued Israel from slavery to himself for the life of the world through Moses. God led Israel through the waters and through the wilderness and to the mountain where he taught them how to live as his heavenly ambassadors. And then he sent them to the promised land to multiply and fill it with his glory, heaven on earth earth. And later, after Israel had rebelled against him and fallen back into sin and slavery, the fullness of time, God the Father so loved the world that he gave his only son, Jesus. And when Jesus had passed through the waters of baptism in the Jordan River, he was baptized by his cousin John, and the heavens opened, and a voice from heaven came as the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus, and the voice of heaven proclaimed this is my Son, with whom I am well pleased, heaven on earth. And then Jesus began to preach, chapter 4, verse 17, and he said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Matthew tells us in chapter 5, verse 1, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus went up on the mountain, and he sat down, and the disciples gathered all around him, and he began to teach. Just as Moses had received the words of God, this time Jesus is speaking the words of God to the people of God. And he, he gets us. He understands what it's like. He knows us. He's, he's as tender and as loving as possible in this sermon. And as he begins to preach, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Heaven on earth. That's what the entire Sermon on the Mount is about. Jesus is both a tender shepherd, he starts very tenderly, but he is also a savvy investor. He knows what he wants. He has a goal, and he is headed towards it 100%. He's the most determined investor the world will ever know. He will achieve his saving goal, even if it costs him his very life. Jesus comes to accomplish what all others before him failed to do. He comes, as he said earlier in the sermon, not to abolish God's law, but to fulfill it. Every jot and 
tittle, every iota, every dot to usher in the kingdom come. And though Jesus does offer his followers eternal life, that's not really the, the primary focus of what he's talking about when he talks about the kingdom of heaven, as he's speaking about it throughout the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking about the kingdom that he has come to establish, the one that has begun to unfold all around him in his ministry, the one that he will give his very life to secure. He's talking about heaven on earth. That's Jesus' saving goal. Before we move on to the next point, let me ask you a question that I'd like for you to consider, just to kind of connect head part here with regard to Jesus' work to create heaven on earth. Let me ask you, if you could settle anywhere in the world, if you could go and live anywhere, where would you go? Where would you go to live? If you could be in any neighborhood, in any house, where would you most want to live? My wife and I like the, the coast. We love to be at the beach. We love places of great beauty. We can very happily live on the beach and uh, walk by the ocean every day. We could also very happily be uh, in the mountains. Maybe we could find a lakeside place in the mountains. We also love places of culture and uh, history. Sometimes think I'd love to live in Jerusalem, the old city. Wouldn't that be nice? There are so many wonderful places around the world. And as I reflect on where I might like to live, I realize that there are longings for paradise that are deep within my heart. That's what it always is about. They always point back to that heavenly garden that God started with. They always point forward to Jesus' savings goal, heaven on earth. Something that will be fully realized when he comes again, but is already present among us right now. We already have it here at Res because we're a little embassy of the kingdom of God. We're already an outpost of that kingdom come. We're an oasis in the desert, a place where you can experience already a foretaste of paradise. Here among us, you can experience this goal that Jesus has and will accomplish because he's the most savvy investor the world has ever known. May his kingdom come, may his will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. So that's Jesus' goal, heaven on earth. Now what about you? What about me? What's our goal? Seeing that Jesus aims to do a lot more than simply make us nice. He's, he's a determined investor who will stop at nothing less than heaven on earth. What about our goals? What are we saving for? No matter your faith, but especially if you're someone who follows Jesus, what are you saving for? I went on the website for my retirement accounts yesterday. And I was blown away to find that a lot of the language about investing sounds very much like contemporary evangelical preaching. <laughs> Let me read you a little bit from this website. 
Imagine you went to visit a friend, but you don't know where she lives. Would you get in your car and start driving, hoping you'd eventually find her? No! You'd get her address and map your route there. Think of your investment plans as a map to get to your financial goal. It will help you set your destination and the route that you will take to get there. Now bow your heads and close your eyes and invite Charles Schwab into your heart. <laughs> Why go to seminary when you can just learn from these investment websites? If you spend any time at all on these, on these sites or with a financial planner, you're going to be asked to declare your goals, right? To set a timeline for when you want to have how much, and then to make a plan for how you're going to get there. So it always works. How much will you need? When do you need it? How are you going to meet this objective? And I want to be clear about this, that there is absolutely nothing wrong with planning for the future. The Bible is filled with instructions to do just this. The Old Testament is telling us again and again, go to the ant, you sluggard, be wise, plan, save, be smart with your resources. And in the New Testament, as I've said, Jesus is someone who sets goals and he is headed towards them. So, you want to be like Jesus? Do this too. Set goals too. There's nothing wrong, by the way, also with the accumulation of wealth. Again, Jesus is 100% supportive. In today's lesson, he is really pushing us, in fact, to be more aggressive in our investments, to be hard charging in the way that we invest. Listen again to how he says it in chapter 6, 19 and 20. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. He is not telling us to stop laying up treasures. He's saying quite the opposite. He says our problem is where we keep them. We're storing them in unsecured locations, which in turn causes us a great deal of anxiety, and we're back to one of these endless loops that Jesus keeps talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. Here it is with regard to money. We're stuck hoarding against the inevitable. Moths, rust, and thieves. Jesus says no matter where we lay up treasures, on earth. They're at risk. Hide them in the mattress or under the floorboards, and they're, they're going to be found either by the moths, by the rust, or by the thieves. Put them in the bank and keep your fingers crossed that the bank doesn't fail. Put them in mutual funds and pray for the economic tides to be in your favor. Jesus isn't fear-mongering. He's telling us what every investment company will tell us in the fine print. It's always buried in there somewhere, right? Past performance does not predict future results. But as helpful as that reminder may be, it's never the full picture. What it should say instead 
is that nothing invested outside of Jesus' kingdom is secure. Nothing invested outside of Jesus' kingdom is secure. There's a lot of advice out there for how we can make things more secure than they already are, you know, uh, to protect against these various risks. The police tell us we should upgrade our security, get better cameras, more cameras, better locks, and so on. The uh, insurance people have moth and rust and thief upgrades they can sell us. The people over at Schwab tell us the best long-term solution is diversification, right? Every strategic improvement we make, though, is matched one way or another by craftier adversaries, mothier moths, rustier rust, smarter thieves, chat GPT-4, <laughs> that is preparing a deep fake of you, taking the money out of the ATM and going to Vegas and blowing it on slots. It's coming. No matter how clever we get in storing it away, they're keeping up with us at every turn. And so we end up always having to work harder, faster, longer to store up more treasures on Earth so as to keep ahead of the moths, the rust, and the thieves. We end up in this vicious cycle once again, doing the same things over and over again, but never having enough. We become like the fool at the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. The one who builds his house on the sand instead of the rock. We keep piling up treasures, but the tide keeps washing them away. But Jesus says there's another way, a better way, and it's not that we stop laying up treasures. It involves rather storing them in a better location, namely the secure location of the heavenly kingdom of God. And again, he's not talking about when we die. He's not talking about some place away from here. He's talking about his kingdom come, for which we, as Christians, are ambassadors even now. Wherever Jesus' heavenly kingdom is established, there you will find eternal security for your treasures. The kingdom of heaven is, by definition, that place where treasures do not decay and cannot be stolen. And that's where you should be putting your savings. Let me ask you another question to help connect head and heart. Who's the wealthiest person alive? Who's the wealthiest living person? Current figures show that Elon Musk and Bernard Arnault in France are neck and neck to be the richest person in the world right now, both with a net worth of around $185 billion. That, of course, is only their worth at the present. It's constantly fluctuating due to, you know, working harder and moths and rusts and thieves. And um, Arnaud is getting old, in his 70s, he's got a few years left. He's probably not going to make that much more. Maybe he will die with 200 billion. Elon Musk, he's a much younger man. He's got a ways to go. And 
who knows how much he can have when he dies. Think about it. He could be at 300 billion, 400 billion, maybe even 500 billion when he dies. Imagine that. It's insane, isn't it? But what will he be worth on the day of his funeral? It's 30 years from now, it may feel like an eternity, but let me assure you, it is not an eternity. The funeral is just the beginning of eternity. And for Elon Musk at his death, what of his treasure will remain? Again, think about who is the wealthiest person alive. And to be clear, I'm talking about secure wealth. Wealth that will last. Who is the truly shrewd and aggressive investor who has laid up treasure that will endure eternally? Jesus has already given us some very important instructions in his sermon about this very thing. He says, for example, in Matthew 5, 11, the last of the Beatitudes, he says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So if you're persecuted for following Jesus, then you're a shrewd investor. You're storing up treasure that will last. Jesus goes on to say in the verses in chapter 6 that precede this passage, talking about giving to the poor and prayer and fasting, he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before others in order to be seen by them, for, they, for then you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Instead, give to the needy in secret, he says, and your heavenly Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, he says, go into the pantry, go into the storeroom, close the door, and pray there. For there, in that place, you will be storing up treasure that is secure. And he says, when you fast, don't disfigure your faces like the moths do, like the rust does, like the thieves do with your money. Same word in the Greek. Don't disfigure your faces like the Pharisees. Instead, anoint your head and wash your face as one who will never decay, as one whom your Father sees and will see forever. He will preserve to everlasting life. The Sermon on the Mount is just the beginning of what Jesus has to say about eternal investing. And he talks about it throughout his ministry. In all four Gospels, you can find what he has to say about money. And so this is not exhaustive, but hopefully these examples are enough to demonstrate the kind of things that Jesus has in mind when he talks about being more aggressive in your investing, investing in things that will last. And in terms of who is the wealthiest person alive, I expect that we will all be surprised when we awake from the dead and we look around 
And we see these people, the kingdom of heaven equivalents to Elon Musk and Bernard Arnault. In view of Jesus' teaching on secrecy, I expect that they will be earthly nobodies, people who have quietly suffered and fasted and prayed and given generously. You better run faster. But if what you really want is to lay up treasure in heaven, treasure that lasts, and, and, and you keep finding your heart vacillating between one or the other direction, then if the light in Jesus says is with our eyes, and the Old Testament uh, has this dichotomy between the good eye and the evil eye, the evil eye is symbolic of greed and of jealousy. The good eye is symbolic of generosity, and, and the truth is that none of us have perfect vision. All of us have suffered under the world's twisting of things, so that we begin to call good evil and evil good. We begin to call light darkness and darkness light. We're prone to baptize evil desires and to call them good, winking at sin in ourselves and others. But thankfully, this condition doesn't have to be permanent. We can retrain our eyes for what is really the life, and we can learn what are the best long-term investment strategies, not by the Schwab website, not by watching necessarily the world's richest people, but by sitting at Jesus' feet and learning from his teaching. And if we follow his teaching, we can learn how to spend our time and our talents and our money and our influence in the service of His kingdom, His coming kingdom, His kingdom that is already here in our midst. We can survey all the things that we've hoarded and stuffed in the mattress or, or built up on the sand, and we can say, how can I dismantle these things and give them to the kingdom to make sure that they are used eternally. And more and more our eyes will become healthy and we'll find more and more joy in giving and receiving. And we'll lay up treasures that last. Talked about Jesus' goal, talked about our goals. Let's talk finally about who to follow. What name do you trust when it comes to investing? Here's an illustration that is going to work for like 10 people in the room. It's going to show how old I am. When I was a kid, there was a series of ads on television that were about a, an investment company that's long forgotten now called E.F. Hutton. And um, I, I can see the three of you nodding right now. <laughs> so it would always show these two white guys in suits with their Wall Street journals and they're reading the paper and the, and the one guy says to the other, uh, are you going to invest in this thing? And the other guy says, well, my broker is E.F. Hutton. And E.F. Hutton says, and, and then the camera pans out and it shows everybody else in the room has put down their fork they stopped what they're doing, and they're all leaning in and listening because they want to know what Ian Hutton says. Ian Hutton is the trustworthy advisor 
whom you want to follow. Of course, he's long forgotten now, but who do you trust when it comes to investments? You know, there's Berkshire Hathaway, or there's maybe looking at, um, at what Bill Gates is doing, or maybe you have your go-to brother-in-law, your rich uncle, somebody that you trust, who you know you can follow. Whoever it is, when they talk, you listen. That's how you do your investments. Jesus knows we're all wired this way. He, he knows that we don't establish our investment goals in a vacuum. In fact, the question of our savings goals is like the tip of the iceberg. And he knows that there is something deeper that he has to get to when it comes to money. He won't leave it just at our goals because he doesn't want us to stay stuck in this endless loop of hoarding and watching the tide take it away. And so he's probing deeper in the rest of this chapter to who is behind our investment strategies. Who are you following? That's the final question when it comes to money. In the same way that all of God's other commandments always point back to the first commandment about worship, Jesus is getting here about who do we worship. That's where he's headed at the end of his teaching on money. He's going beneath the surface, plunging below the tip of the iceberg, and he says in chapter 6, verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Actually, in Greek it says, you cannot serve both theos, God, and mammonas, the ancient Near Eastern god Mammon, which was the god of love. I think the translation should stay God and Mammon because it gets at this question of who do you worship? Which God do you follow? Because that's really what it comes down to, doesn't it? Which God do you trust? And Jesus says you cannot worship both God and Mammon any more than you can have two full-time jobs. Can you imagine having two full-time jobs? Can you imagine being the, the chief of staff for House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and having to report for duty at his office tomorrow morning in Rayburn Building while also being chief of staff for Senator Chuck Schumer and having to report for duty tomorrow morning at his office in the Hart Building and having to run back and forth all day long and having two phones and two laptops and two dysfunctional parties. Can you imagine? It's impossible. You can't do both, right? You would have to choose one or the other. And that's what Jesus is saying that we must do. We have to choose between him and mammon. Not saying which one McCarthy is, by the way. Um, or Schumer. <clears throat> Jesus, the Son of God, invites us to choose him. Jesus, you're the Son of God. You've never known what it's like to be us. You've never known what it's like to be poor and powerless and totally dependent on... Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, actually. 
And you have. You, Jesus did enter our world in complete dependence upon his Father. He, he said no every time mammon demanded his obedience. He refused so that he might continue to follow his Father and his Father alone. And so wherever Jesus went as a result, he was unveiling the kingdom of heaven. He was, he was bringing that realm where our Father's constant provision is enjoyed without interruption, without decay, without theft. And through Jesus' death and resurrection, he has secured places for us in his kingdom for all of eternity. And now all we need are the eyes of faith, good eyes to see it. And that's what the remainder of chapter 6 is about, starting in verse 25. What's really lovely about this last little bit of the sermon is that Jesus is very lovingly and tenderly opening our eyes to see the heavenly kingdom unfolding all around us, things that we're missing because we're too busy staring at our empty wallets. And he says, hey, put that away. Take my hand. Let's go for a walk in the kingdom of heaven. Look at these birds. They're not farmers, are they? They don't till and plant and thresh and store, do they? It's because our heavenly Father feeds them. <coughs> Aren't you more valuable than these birds? So what good is that anxiety doing? Come on, let's go for another walk. Come on, let me show you here. Look at these flowers. They're decked out more gloriously than even King Solomon was in his day. And you know how they do it? They're not tailors. They're just part of God's heavenly kingdom. If God clothes them in such beauty, don't you think he'll take care of you too? So don't be anxious. Don't worry. Follow me. I'll take care of these things. You can trust me. We said goodbye to our friend Leslie this past week. And it's hard to think of these things without thinking about her. Our young friend who should not have died so young. Of course, uh, some of us who, who were with her bedside over the last few days um, had this wonderful and awful privilege to be able to pray with her and sing with her and read scripture with her and, and be with her uh, in her time of anxiety. And of course she was anxious because her body was failing due to cancer. And it was scary. But we were able to be with her. And what an extraordinary privilege it was to remember the promises of God. To remember that this was not the end. Just the beginning eternity in the kingdom of heaven with her. What a wonderful thing to, to entrust her into the loving arms of the great physician. To know that she'd be clothed by the great tailor and she'd be fed by the great chef. And now she lacks nothing 
nothing whatsoever. She's surrounded on all sides by treasures that have been stored up and are, are uh, not, no longer susceptible to rust or moth or thieves. Who will you follow? You, you can't serve two masters. Will it be the Lord or will it be mammon? You can't serve both. Follow the Lord with all that you have. Practice generosity. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Let me ask you one final question as we close. What's the most expensive meal you've ever had? My wife and I were given this unbelievable gift this week. We, we had from some friends the opportunity to go to what's widely considered the finest restaurant in the region, one of uh, only 13 top-rated Michelin restaurants in the country, the only one within a couple of hundred miles. Let me confess to you now, before God and all of you, that we broke every one of our Latin disciplines. <laughs> I'm going to say that. It was unbelievably good. It was uh, spectacular. <laughs> so, so good. The, the food from start to finish, every course, seven courses, just kept getting better and better. Every wine pairing was, was incredible. Uh, the best wine we've ever had until the next one, you know. And uh, it was like we had won the lottery. You know, we were we were like royalty. We had such a good time. The only downside was that we were there at this restaurant, uh, 150 miles away, while our friend was in the hospital dying. And it was such a contrast, you know. Um, we of course we we had. Other friends who were with her, and Andrew Evans uh, was there at her bedside as she was dying. So, in addition to my best suit, I, I wore this bracelet. That's the uh, you know the hospital bracelet that we were using to get in to see Leslie. And we we enjoyed these wines, and we toasted to our friend. We toasted to the Lord Jesus, who is. King over, the, over death and the grave, and will raise us all to victory. And we talked about what is the most expensive meal that we've ever had. It was not that one. We have it every Sunday. Every Sunday. Holy Communion cost our Lord his very life. He laid it down for us so that we might not any longer be anxious about what we eat, what we wear, or anything else, even death itself. And what we share on Sundays is just a foretaste of what our friend is partaking of in resplendent victory. Don't be anxious about what you'll eat, or about what you'll wear, 
or about moth or rust or thieves or cancer or anything else. Seek first Jesus' kingdom and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. Set your investment horizon on eternity. Don't settle for 30 little years or 50 years or whatever it may be. Don't be so short-sighted. Seek the kingdom and store up treasures that last. Let's pray together. We praise you, Lord, for your great victory over death and over moths and thieves and rust and anxiety and every other thing that makes us afraid or anxious. And we pray, may your kingdom come and your will be done on Capitol Hill as it is in heaven. We ask that you change this place and change our hearts and open our eyes to see what you are accomplishing in us and through us and all around us. For your glory, we pray.